We're going to begin this evening in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. On Sunday nights, for about four weeks now, I think, or so, we've been doing some teaching from the Bible and from history about why we use the Bible that we use. And um, we use the Bible to teach that God promised to give us His inspired words. It's a promise from God. And we believe in the inspiration of the Scripture. We believe that God gave the Word, and God used human instruments to write down the Word. And we believe that we can trust that Word. And then we be, last week we talked about the preservation of the Scripture, how God and His Word promised to preserve His eternal Word in a way that we could trust it. And so we thank the Lord for those things. We talked about the canon of the Scripture one night, why we have the books in the Bible that we have. And tonight I want to talk a little bit about the subject of translation because um, the Bible was not given originally in the English language and the Old Testament was given in the language of the Hebrew people, in the Hebrew language. And the New Testament was given in the language of the day, the Greek language, which is a story in and of itself that God gave in the New Testament era that uh, Greek, the Greek language was such a universal language at that time. Uh, during, the, during the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the great Greek empire, of course the Greek language was used throughout the majority of the world. And um, when the Romans empire came into power about 30 years before Christ or so, um, they maintained the, la- the Greek language. And so when uh, the Bible was being given through the, the Gospels and the Epistles, it was given in a language that was common to all people, which is a great blessing. But we're interested in, in how it was translated into other languages, and that's kind of what this is going to be about tonight. Let's stand together. If you're able to stand, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to see uh, firsthand how there is an assault, a satanic assault against God's Word. It's not new. Even though it's going on today, it's not new. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said, the serpent said, Unto the woman, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So that was a question that this serpent posed to Eve, referring to something God had said. Well, if you just look some verses prior to that in Genesis chapter 2, we see exactly what God said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So God says of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day 
that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So, in chapter 3 and verse 1, the serpent says, Hath God said? Did God really say that? You shall not eat of every tree. And the woman said unto the serpent, in verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And in verse 6, we see that the woman disobeyed followed this temptation, and, and her husband also disobeyed God's command, and sin entered the human race. So let's use that as a place to begin. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, how we thank you for preserving for us the word of God. We pray that you'd help tonight and bless as we study it, help us to be attentive, and Lord, this is a battle that rages on, and I just pray you'd help us to have an interest in the truth, and a better understanding of why we use the Bible we do. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we see this assault, this initial assault as far as the record of God's Word against the Bible. And it was against the Bible. It was against God. This temptation was against God. It was against man, against Adam and Eve. But it's also against the Word of God. Questioning God's word in verse 1, we already emphasized that. Hath God said this? Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Actually what God said was you can eat of every tree of the garden except for one. You're not to eat that. But this is the way the devil works. He tries to cast doubt on the word of God. We've known many people, I've known many people, who even people who had been saved for a period of time who go through this questioning God's Word. That's really what Satan does. He questions the Word of God. He adds to the Word of God. I mean, this was a part of the confusion. I think you see confusion in Eve's words. In verse 3, she's, she's supposedly quoting what God says when she says, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Now, God never said don't touch it. But, but there's this diluting of God's Word this confusion about God's Word, adding to God's Word, contradicting God's words. And it's noteworthy that Satan's first words, his first conversation to the human race was this, Yea, hath God said, to cast doubt on the Word of God. Now, Satan hates the Word of God. And he is, he is who he is as this Lucifer, the devil, this fallen angel, because he disobeyed and disrespected God and His Word. Now, if he so he hates the Word of God, and in order to corrupt, to corrupt the Word of God in the languages of the world, one of the things that he uses is the the corruption of the manuscripts that would eventually be translated into Bibles. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about getting the Bible into other languages. Now, where did the Bible come from? It came because God gave His Word through His prophets in the Old Testament and to preachers, apostles, prophets in the New Testament. And 
the Old Testament, as I said earlier, is written in Hebrew, which is wonderful if you know Hebrew and you have a good Hebrew Bible. I don't know Hebrew, nor Greek, uh, as we've talked about this before, but the canon of the Old Testament, the books of the Old Testament, was complete before New Testament times. And the, the manuscripts, and all manuscripts are, we have no, just, just in case you've thought, well, maybe we can, someplace they're archived, these original, these original Pentateuch from the hand, handwriting of Moses can be found. No, everything we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. And so the Old Testament manuscripts are not as numerous as the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, there are thousands, literally many thousands, of either partial, maybe parts of a book, maybe an entire book, maybe some, more, certainly more, some, more complete than others. But we have, so we have this record of these, these copies of copies in the New Testament of the Greek language. They were, the books of the Bible, as we've talked before, were distributed. Even, even while the New Testament is still being written, some of these epistles were already being copied and distributed, copied and given to the churches. But how would these inspired and preserved scriptures be translated into other languages? And how could you distinguish, and this is such an important question, how could you distinguish between the pure manuscripts and the corrupt manuscripts? How could you do that? How, and how was that done? You know, if you think about the translation, that's our subject tonight. If you think about the translation of the manuscripts, they're critical factors, crucial factors to consider. One is the integrity of the translators. If the, someone who is translating, say, an epistle of the New Testament or part of that, and he's translating it from the Greek into another language, and he has a certain theological bent that he would, it wouldn't be beyond the possibility that he would change that, that he would, that he would insert words or remove words or, can you follow what I'm saying? So the integrity of the translators was critical. But as critical, or more critical perhaps, would be the purity of the manuscripts that they had. Now, as I said last week, talking about preservation, I know I'm reviewing some, but the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, that's the, the complete Old Testament translation that was examined during the 6th century by the Masoretics. They, it became the gold standard. It was unrivaled as the pure Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Some of those Masoretic Old Testament uh, transcripts were a part of what was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. And they were intact. Some of the, as we said last time, the book of Isaiah almost complete. And so we're talking about where these, where do they start with? The, the, the Old Testament, they started with a Hebrew uh, text. That was uh, in 1516. So the Maseret, by the way, the Maserites were during 500 or so A.D., and in 1516, a man by the name of Daniel Bonberg took the Masoretic text and printed a Hebrew Old Testament in the Hebrew language called the First Rabbinical Bible, and then did a second edition in 19, 1524. And this Old Testament, taken from the Masoretic text, is the primary text that our King James Bible was translated 
into in 1611. So there's the Hebrew, the Hebrew text, and is a and it's a very uh, we're very confident. No reason to question that text. I read a very interesting testimony from several sources. I thought I'd take a moment and share it with you tonight about a man in the last first of the last century who devoted his entire life. And when I tell you a little bit about the man, you'll understand that's not an exaggeration. He devoted his entire life basically to the study of the Old Testament. His name was Robert Wilson. And he determined at an early age that he would spend his life proving the purity of the Hebrew text. And he was no average scholar by the by the age of 25, he could read the New Testament in nine different languages and could repeat from memory a Hebrew translation of the New Testament without missing a single syllable. It was his goal to master every language necessary to read every available manuscript in its own language. And in his lifetime, he mastered 45 languages and dialects. This was... This is his, these are his own, his own words I'm about to read. I decided to consecrate my life to the study of the Old Testament. I was 25 then when I did that. I judged from the life of my ancestors that I should live to be 70. So I should spend 45 years to this work. I divided the, first, the, the, the 45 years into three parts. The first 15 years I would devote to study the languages necessary. For the second 15 years, I would devote myself to the study of the text of the Old Testament. And I reserved the last 15 years for the work of writing the results of my previous studies so as to give them to the world. After I had learned the necessary language, I set about the investigation of every consonant in the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, we only have a few consonants in our vocabulary, in our, in our letters. There are a million and a quarter consonants in the Hebrew language. It took me many years to achieve that task. I had to read through the Old Testament and look at every consonant in it. Here's the point I want to get to. The result of those 30 years study which I've given to the text has been this. I can affirm that there is not a page of the Old Testament concerning which we have need to doubt. We can be absolutely certain that substantially we have the text of the Old Testament that Christ and the apostles had and which was in existence from the beginning. Now, people say, well, I just don't believe in it. Well, here's a man who put a little bit more work into it than most people would, and he's confident. So the translation begins with the manuscripts. As I said earlier, in the New Testament, there are thousands of Greek manuscripts. And in, when the translators begin to work on the King James, uh, there were translations into other languages, primarily Latin, but other languages. Some of them were pure. Some of them were not reliable. They were corrupt. Just as, God, just as God is committed to giving us His Word and preserving His Word, Satan, I believe, is committed to corrupting God's Word. He attacks the contents of the Scripture, but he also attacked 
the text of the Scripture. And in the first and second century, many biblical texts of the New Testament were corrupted. Now, where did these, where did these manuscripts come from that were translated into our Bible in the 1600s, in our English Bible? And there are really two streams of texts from two different geographical areas and two different, really, sources. One of them is called the Alexandrian text. And I know this is not Bible study, but it's study about the Bible. The Alexandrian text, Alexandria is a city in Egypt named after Alexander the Great. It had a large Jewish population, and there was a scholar in Alexandria that your name perhaps, his name perhaps you've heard, his name was Origen. And Origen became known as the father of textual corruption, corrupting the text of the Scripture. He, for instance, denied the biblical account of Adam and Eve. He denied the resurrection. He was a brilliant man, though. He wrote thousands of books. His, his influence... Not, wasn't, what is it limited just to Egypt and to Alexandria? He influenced another brilliant man by the name of Jerome, who was born in Italy in 340 AD, who studied in Rome. He was doing work on a translation of the Bible into Latin. He worked at the command of the Pope, working on this translation. He relied on greatly on Origen's works, the translation based on Origen's manuscripts. He, was, he, Jerome, was pressured to put apocryphal books into his translation. The apocrypha, which, as we studied several weeks ago, were, not, were never considered reliable, inspired books of the Bible. The work of Jerome, this, this might sound familiar to some of you, became known as the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was the first Bible printed by Gutenberg. But the Latin Vulgate became the primary text that, we, that eventually led to the Roman Catholic Bible. These were corrupted scriptures but because they came from corrupted texts. The texts were not reliable. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but... When people wonder, well, why is there such differences between the King James Bible and maybe the New American Standard Bible? Or why are the Revised Bible? Why are there differences? So the difference is because they came from different manuscripts. Now, that's an important thing for you to understand. That's a simple thing for you to know. But it's not just that, they, that two different people or two different groups of people took the same material and translated it differently. They didn't have the same material to begin with. Corrupted manuscripts lead to corrupted Bibles. This Alexandrian text, this stream of manuscripts was really rejected by most people until 1881 when the revised version was authorized by two men by the name of Westcott and Hort. How many of you have ever heard those names, Westcott and Hort? Many of you have. The Westcott-Hort text 
resulted in more than 36,000 differences than we have in our King James Bible today. That's not a small number. And these differences included entire verses, major doctrines were affected, and the, they relied upon two Greek... Um, their Greek translation relied upon two old manuscripts that... Um, you wouldn't hear, probably hear unless you were doing an in-depth study into this. And by the way, I've said this every time I've done this. I'm not an expert on this subject. But I, I studied this out for myself many, many years ago because I was saved in a church that did not take the position on the Bible that we take. And when I became the pastor of this church, I didn't have a strong... I used the King James, but it wasn't for, for well-founded reasons just because that's kind of what I inherited. And I said, I'm going to study this out for myself. And one of the things that we see in this West Court and, and a Hort translation is it was based on these two older manuscripts. One of them is called the Codex Vaticanus. Sounds like Vatican, doesn't it? And it does for a reason. The other, Codex Sinaiticus. That's the Sinaiticus um, manuscript was found at a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. Sinaiticus, Sinai. And it had unbiblical books in it. This translate or this not translation, but this this uh, con- this uh, manuscript did. The Vaticanus had been locked up in the Vatican Library for centuries. Now these two these two um, manuscripts, which really became primary manuscripts for Westcott and Hort, were called twin manuscripts, and yet. In those two texts, those Westcott and Hort uh, translate these, the texts they use, they, those two texts agree, disagree, excuse me, with each other 3,000 times just in the four Gospels. One of the reasons that I really want you to think about this tonight is you hear this often, well, the, the, the older manuscripts say, or the more ancient manuscripts say, and... The oldest manuscripts really were what Westcott and Hort used, oldest being that they could be, they could be traced to being written or copied uh, earlier than some others. And so because they're older, people say they must be better. That's not necessarily true. These corrupt manuscripts are at the root of the modern corrupt Bibles. If you want to know why some, why all the other Bibles are different from the King James in many ways, it's because they came from different manuscripts. Now that's the first stream of manuscripts is the Alexandrian text, based out of, originated primarily out of Egypt. The second stream of text is often called the traditional text, sometimes called the majority text, sometimes called the received text, or the textus receptus, the traditional text. The reason they're called the manuscript text is because the, 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 existing, the majority of the manuscripts, existing manuscripts agree with the traditional text. The center of these manuscripts, now think about the difference, where the center of these manuscripts 
The hub from which they came was Antioch in Syria. Now what do we know about Antioch? It was the hub of New Testament church planting. It was the church that the Apostle Paul was a member of when he started the missionary journeys. And this stream of text insisted on a literal interpretation of Scripture. And it was from this traditional text that our King James Bible was translated. All, all other English Bibles were translated from, at least in part, relying upon the Alexandrian text. So you got to understand this. Of all the English Bibles, and remember we, we quoted from sources on our first night that there are more than five or six hundred transla- English translations of the English Bibles. Imagine that. Like we need another Bible. We've already had a brand new one that's hit the presses in, in, in this, this year. Where did these translations come from? They came from one or the other of these streams of manuscripts. Either the Alexandrian text or the traditional text. But every English Bible since 1611, when the King James Bible was complete, every English Bible since 1611 has relied in part on the inferior, non-traditional text. Everyone. Including the New King James Bible. Now, turn with me if you would in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I I have been planning for some months, really, to do some teaching and preaching on this subject. I have to tell you, I have a, I've had a bit of hesitancy about it because it's not just teaching the Bible. It's teaching about the Bible. But at the heart of this controversy is, I think, a spiritual warfare that's against the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11... And verse 1, Paul says, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I'm jealous over you, writing to the church at Corinth, for I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I've espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, the, 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 the message that God gave Adam and Eve was not complex, right? It wasn't difficult. See all those trees out there? You can eat from every one of them trees you see out there. Eat to your heart's content. But there's one tree. Stay away from that tree. Now, is that hard? But you know, the devil is a master at confusing and complicating and muddying the water, so to speak. So Paul says, I have a fear 
lest the Satan beguile Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh, someone comes to you, he's writing to a church, he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we've not preached. Or if you receive another spirit whom you've not received, or another gospel which you've not accepted, you might well bear with him. So Paul warned about another gospel. Don't ever accept another gospel. You know, in Galatians chapter 1, we have that... Uh, let's just turn to it quickly. won't spend much time there. Go to the right, if you would, please. Galatians chapter 1, in verse 6, where Paul writes to these churches of Galatia, and he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that calls you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, in verse 7, that would pervert the gospel, twist it, the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. We say, before, as we said before, we so... Say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Here's a warning about another gospel. And by the way, these people, even in the New Testament era, even in the days of the Apostle Paul, had to deal with this matter of people changing the gospel. These Judaizers were mixing uh, works with grace for salvation they were saying circumcision was necessary to be saved. They're, they're changing the gospel. They're mixing works with grace. They're perverting the word of God. And uh, back to 2 Corinthians, just back to your left a little bit, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where we were. But a little later in the chapter, I want to read a few verses that really just uh, target this deception. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse... 13 it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Here we've here we have Paul talking to this church about false preachers. People who were uh, transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness. Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And he says it's satanic. It's the devil's. Even the devil does that. You know, God is not confused. God is not mixed. I mean... God, there's, you know, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And when a person starts tampering with the Word of God, you have to wonder, what is their real incentive? Where does this motivation come from? Because you're, when you're changing the Word of God, you're changing God's Word. That's serious, is it not? That's very serious. In uh, 2 Corinthians also... Chapter 2, let's go to that for just a moment. Paul says an interesting thing here about things that were going on in his day. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
in verse 17, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. He says, now there were Bible corruptors in Paul's day. And there weren't just a few. He said there are many. For we're not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. You know, um, even Jesus dealt with the Pharisees because they were making the word of God of none effect by their tradition. And so this battle against the Bible has gone on for a long time. And the devil, I believe the devil is right in the midst of it. Now let's go to one last place, or maybe not the last, but near the last. Go to Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus um, makes a great teaching about how Satan works. Matthew 13 and verse 24. And I use this because I believe that is the source of this corruption, this, this corruption of the manuscripts, the corruption of the text, which led to corrupt Bibles. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy had done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Satan is a great deceiver. He's the enemy. He's the enemy that sowed tares among the wheat. The good seed is the word of God. That's the good seed. And the devil is a master at what he does. He's, one of this, this great deception has taken place by this, these older manuscripts, this, this notion that, and I've had people say this to me, it's written in their literature, that the oldest is best, the ancient manuscripts say this, you'll even find these kind of comments in, in numerous Bibles. Um, they'll say something like, the older manuscripts don't, don't agree with this. The older manuscripts leave these verses out. You may have seen those things in your Bible. That's just casting doubt on the Word of God. And, and again, God uh, is, there's no uh, differentiating. There's no changes. God is, God is the same all the time. Why, why would somebody, this is just common sense, why would, why would God... Why would God give us a pure word and then God be in agreement with all these different changes and convolutions of God's word? It's not like God at all, right? It's not like God. So the enemy's done this. And what, the, and what you have here in Matthew 13 is you have these counterfeits that look like the real thing. And that's why they said, what, what do you want to do? You want to... You gather up these 
tares. And he says, no, while you gather up the tares, you'll root up the wheat with them. And a counterfeit is an imitation. It's an, imi- imita- it's a, it's an imitation with the intent to deceive. Now, uh, we had, uh, many years ago, we had someone from our church that was responsible for receiving the offering and taking the offering and taking it to the bank. And they went up there to the bank one day and, and turned the money in. And they said, you've got a counterfeit bill here. And so we got caught. We've been doing that for years, but we finally got, no. <laughs> but the person that counted the money, they, count the, they would count the money every week. They were familiar with what money looks like. But they didn't recognize that it was a counterfeit. A counterfeit is an imitation with the intent of deceiving. And the logic that people use for these, these um, Bibles that were taken from corrupt texts is saying, well, it's easier for me to read, you know. It doesn't have all those these and thous. I've been reading the Bible for a lot of years. And to this day, I've never stumbled over a thee or a thou. Isn't that an amazing thing? And, it's, and so people say that. Well, it's just much easier to read. And the truth of the matter is, no matter, and I realize people are getting... There's the dumbing down in our culture. That's a reality. But that does a, that does, that's a, a smokescreen, really, is all that is. But it's a deception. It's a deception to get people to read a Bible that's, that's from a corrupt text. And, and it's a counterfeit. And the, and the Word of God says more than once, there is such a thing as a counterfeit Jesus, a Another Jesus. There is such a thing as a counterfeit gospel. And by the way, that's, that's corrupted our culture. Counterfeit gospels. Gospels that aren't even the gospel of the Bible. And the Bible says there's counterfeit preachers. And by the way, they're counterfeit Christians. They may look like a Christian, but they're not really a, a Christian like, in the sense that the Bible says they've had a new birth. There's counterfeit doctrine. I was thinking about this verse while I was... While I was Preaching a moment ago, we go to 2 Timothy. And this, I believe, will be the last place we'll go. In 2 Timothy, no, excuse me, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And just leave this, this uh, first couple of verses. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. I love that language. Very clear, very precise, expressly. Capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. These people who had been a part of the faith are departing from the faith. They're departing from the faith once delivered unto the saints. And they're paying attention to, giving heed to, listening to, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. That's counterfeit doctrine. It's not the doctrine of the Word of God. Don't think for... You say, well, a person's preaching and they've got a Bible. You know, it must be true. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Paul says, we're not of those who handle the Word of God deceitfully. There's counterfeit doctrine. 
And if there's counterfeit doctrine, there's counterfeit preachers, there's counterfeit gospels, there's counterfeit Jesuses, I want to say there's also counterfeit scriptures. They're counterfeits. That doesn't mean that they don't have any Bible in them. But this this Bible that we hold in our hand doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk about the... And I think that'll be our last lesson on this subject. The King James Bible itself. And how... What was the process, the various translations that led to the translation of the King James Bible and look at that process in itself of how the King James Bible was translated is an amazing thing to think about. And we're going to look at some of the, some of the just a few of the, but some of the real drastic changes that have occurred from this Bible to other Bibles, other translations. And some, some of the Bibles are not even translations. They're paraphrases. They're just generalizations. Could you imagine, could you imagine me sitting down and, and saying, okay, I'm going to take a Bible, maybe in the original language, the text, maybe just take one in the Latin language or one in the English language. I'm just going to take a Bible, and I'm going to write it out in my own words. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? That's exactly what some of them are. And people read it as if it's the Word of God. Things that are different are not the same. So we're going to look at the steps that led to the early translations and ultimately the translation of our King James Bible. I want to conclude by saying this. This is not just a matter of academics. It's not just a matter of of intellectually understanding the different languages and how we got our Bible. It's a matter of faith. And it's a matter of trusting what God says. But listen, it's also a matter of understanding that this this is a spiritual matter. And I know I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Anyone to me who would take who would undertake the project of taking the pure Word of God and altering it or changing it has got some real serious spiritual issues. This is the Word of God. I mean, God clearly says if you add to this or take away from this, you've got some serious things that you're going to have to deal with. Is that right or wrong? It's a serious matter. And so it's not, and it's not just a matter of being old-fashioned. You say, well, you're just old-fashioned. What's, uh, you're probably right. <laughs> but I mean, that's not, I hadn't got anything to do with it. It's, a, it's about being true, being true to what the Bible teaches and, and understanding where these other translations came from. It's not about how old you are, you know. There, there are a number of issues that a church absolutely needs to be right on. And this is one of those issues. This, 
You know, I will discuss things with people. I'll pray with people about things. I'll study. If you have something to say, well, I've got something that's kind of different, I'll read it and I'll study it. I'm, I'm not opposed to learning, but I'm just telling you, if you're not right on the Bible, you're not right. Let God be true and every man a liar. Amen? That's what the Bible says. And, and, I, and you'd be hard-pressed, and I'm not saying this because I think anybody here would challenge it, but you'd be hard-pressed to give a good, spiritual, intellectual, spiritual um, defense of why we've changed the Word of God. Aren't you glad for the Bible? People, people died that we could have a copy of the Word of God. Amen. We ought to be good stewards of it. I don't know how many of you ever go to bookstores, Christian bookstores. I don't. I don't. I mean, I do occasionally, but it's rare. Um, if there was a Walmart my wife was in and there was a Christian bookstore next to it, I'd choose to go to the Christian bookstore. <laughs> but it's rare that I go to the bookstore, Christian bookstores. But this has happened to me, and it's happened to people in our church where you go to, into a Christian bookstore and you can't find a King James Bible. Years ago, when there was a Christian bookstore over in Washington, one of our ladies went in there looking for a Bible and couldn't find a King James and went to the person at the counter and said, uh, do you have any King James Bibles? And the person behind the counter said, are you from Mount Zion? <laughs> True story. Isn't that something? They're, they've become very, it's, a, it's an uncommon thing to have people. What a, what a terrible testimony of the day we live in. I mean, uh, think about a Christian, a generation of Christians. And I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying they're not good people. I'm not saying they're not having good intention. But imagine a generation of Christians, this is what we have, that the majority of them disrespect the Bible that is clear to the most reliable Bible in the English language. Isn't that something? It's a bad testimony, isn't it? it truly is.